Hey all, it's Alex. I'm a new producer of the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. Before we start today's show, I wanted to take a second and give some background on today's content. As you'll hear, our guest, Dr. Joaquin Schulze, has wide-ranging academic interests. He works at the intersection of genomics, immunology, and computer science. This feedback loop between different realms of research is evident in the concept of swarm theory, one of the main topics that David and Dr. Schultz discuss at length in this episode. Swarm theory confronts a central problem of artificial intelligence in healthcare. Machine learning thrives off of large pools of centralized data, yet medical data is inherently decentralized, spread out across hospitals and countries, and hidden behind layers of firewalls and privacy protections. Unlocking these vast quantities of siloed data is a central challenge in scaling AI in healthcare. Dr. Schulze outlines the technical solution to maximize both patient privacy and the quantities of data available to machine learning developers. Why call it swarm learning? Imagine a school of fish or a swarm of locusts moving together in concert. Each organism moves on its own, yet also as part of a larger whole. Through swarm learning, individual medical centers maintain and protect vital patient data while pooling their resources to reach computing insights they could not on their own. This episode is a great introduction to a topic that, within AI and medicine, will likely only grow in importance. For anyone interested in the leading edge of the field, this is a must-listen. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. I'm your host, David Wu, and in today's episode, I interview Dr. Joachim Schulze, who is a professor of genomics and immunoregulation at the DZNE in Germany and the University of Bonn. He is our first guest from outside the U.S., so we are officially an international podcast. I'm excited to share this interview with you today because Dr. Schulze recently published a very exciting new paper this year in Nature, detailing a framework for using swarm learning and blockchain technology for decentralized and confidential machine learning on clinical data. If this sounds like a lot, don't worry. We do a deep dive in our interview, so hopefully you can come away with a clearer understanding of how this promising new framework for collaborative research improves algorithm performance as well as preserves patient privacy. On another note, I've come to really enjoy doing this podcast. I feel like in each episode I meet a brilliant scientist or accomplished figure and through conversation discover the common humanity as well as the power of teamwork, which is immutable facts of life. I hope you all enjoy. Thank you. So hello, everyone. My guest today is Dr. Joachim Schulze. Uh, I apologize if I butchered the name, but he is actually our very first guest from outside the U.S. He's from Germany, and uh, he is a professor at the DZNE, um, which is German for the German Center for Neurodegenerative Diseases, and he's also a professor at the University of Bonn. Uh, I, I hope I pronounced that right, too, but a professor of genomics and immunoregulation. So uh, Dr. Schulze, uh, I was wondering if you could tell us about your path and how you came to the intersection of medicine and machine learning. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, when you sent the invitation, I was uh, looking it up and I thought that's a very nice opportunity. So thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm by training, I'm an, uh, an MD really. Yeah, um, But um, before I started medical school, I actually started uh, to study math uh, and then stopped that. Uh, went to medical school, regretted it in the meantime, maybe I should have done math. <laughs> um, and then, you know, there was, you know, also a, a connection always to computing and IT. So I liked this always, but I finished my medical school and always was interested in, in computer sciences uh, throughout my uh, scientific career. 
Um, also, you know, after medical school, I went to uh, see patients for a very short time and then realized uh, maybe science and research is more interesting to me. So I asked uh, my, the chair of, or the professor for, for, for the department whether he would support me to go for a research fellowship to the United States. And so he did that and I had to write a, a fellowship grant. I got the grant and then I went for 10 years to uh, the US, to Boston, to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, got a scientific education there and then for state in science. So, so never went back really to medical. And then, you know, in my field, it was very clear in the 2000s um, when there was the human genome was uh, sequenced and that this going to be a revolution. Yeah, so it, it was super interesting to us to study the function of the genome and, and its, its, its regulation and in context of the immune system. And when I then back, went back to Germany, I decided it would be probably a good idea to have uh, research at the intersection between genomics, uh, immunology and, and computer sciences, bioinformatics. And that was hard to start because you had to go into all these areas and had to make context to people from other fields. But in the long run, this worked out very nicely because you got basically always uh, together with people from different disciplines and could basically think about how could you apply the knowledge and the expertise from one field to the other one. And uh, that's how we set up also our, our, our institute, our, how we do our science. And that's how basically it started a couple of years ago when you know the AI field um, really went off and then there was a lot of things happening that we also uh, decided you know for what we want to do with transcriptomics and genomics um, uh, with understanding you know could we use these technologies to diagnose patients that we should invest into that and that's how it connected basically. Mm. Yeah, I. I uh... I think it's very cool that you've been in so many different fields. You know, like not only there's the immunology, there's genomics, bioinformatics, neurodegenerative diseases. Like there's like so much, um, you, you know, like which do, do you consider yourself a part of all of them? Or do you have a certain one that you like, like the like most, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you get, you know, also you get sometimes criticized. And so like, can, can't you focus on something, right? Because, you know, other people working, you know, on some one subject for their life or even one method or one gene or something like that. Mm -hmm. That was never so my my thing. I, I like to bring things together. You know, of course, that comes sometimes with a disadvantage that you might not get too not not deep enough into things. Um, and so from time to time, you have to do this exercise. Yeah? So we, we really take one subject and then flesh it out, work it out very in detail. Um, and of course, my training is in immunology. Yeah? So I think there I have uh, done most of my work where we went into much of much detail. But I have to say, you know, many of the things that we uncovered in immunology was based basically because we were able to apply genomics technologies and bioinformatics and computer sciences to our questions. Yeah? So mm -hmm. this, while we really were answering you know, fundamental questions in one field, it was actually only possible because we knew at least uh, um, the basics of uh, technologies and algorithms and, and approaches in other fields. And of what we're doing mm -hmm. then is we're building teams. So in these teams, you have people that are specialists for a certain thing. Um, 
and you have to you have to learn how to speak to each other. You know, there are different scientific languages. So one of the major points in our teams is um, we take quite some effort to make sure that we know what the other ones actually mean with what they're saying. Um, and that's the kind of trick. And it, sometimes it's it's a lot of work because you know having people really speaking different languages is not always easy yeah, um, yeah. but um but it works out and over time you get practice and you know how to handle it um yeah but i like basically to you know looking from a technical perspective if you have new technologies that are out there and you can apply them to important questions it's actually good to have a broad overview of things yeah and you and 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 if it works out it's fine um, people told me you're you're a risk taker because <laughs> what, what if it doesn't turn out? You know, isn't it better to stay what you know with what you're known for? Yeah, it's also if a scientist switches fields, suddenly you're not known in that field. You start from scratch and it takes time, so that that risk you take. But if it's successful, it's 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 a lot of fun too. I, I like that. Uh, you know, I feel like uh, you're very much a Renaissance man, and I feel like much of the the biggest breakthroughs in science is all about cross-pollination, you know, when you kind of merge two very different fields. And I think that's a perfect segue, you know, to the, the topic of our podcast, it being the, the medicine and machine learning podcast. I was curious, uh, when did you start to incorporate um, AI or ML technologies into your research? Yeah. So um, it actually started uh, a couple of years ago when, you know, I remember still in 1999, there was, um, there was a a guy that's very well known in, in the US and across the world in, in cancer research is Todd Golub from Broad Institute and, and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. He was just working a floor above us. And he had um, he had used this, this, at that time, fantastic new technology, which we called microarrays. And these allowed us to measure basically the, um, the function of the genome and measuring function of genes by the thousands. Yeah? So, you know, we were used to study one gene by a gene and, and, and it was very labor intensive, but he had this device where he could measure the, uh, the, the function of these genes um, for the whole genome. And he, he applied that to find out could, if I could measure all the, all, the, all the gene activation of all genes in a, in a cell, um, could I basically use that for cancer research in a way that I say, like, you know, one cancer might have a completely different set of genes that are switched on compared to another one. And, um, and that's what he did. He basically looked for two blood cancers. One was uh, acute uh, myeloid leukemia. So that was a cancer from myeloid cells. And um, the other one was acute lymph lymphatic leukemia. So from lymphocytes. And by just measuring these thousands of genes, it was very clear that these two cancers are completely different. And then he applied very simple machine learning saying like, I can use machine learning algorithms and it was really super simple algorithms at that time and use this patterns in these data to see which one is an AML and which one is an ALL. And, wow. um, and that was in science in 1999 very few patients, like 25 patients, so uh, borderline statistically, because, you know, you know, we know now that you better have a lot of, of samples, um, more data for machine learning. Um, but the principle was there. And, you know, while he stated in that paper already that this might, you know, lead to a completely new way of diagnosing these diseases, 
it didn't take off for a very long time. So, you know, when you look then 10 years later, there was no test based on that. So we were interested to understand why is this the case, yeah? Um, and, and then um, we look basically, is it possible to see uh, with more data that you make even better tests? Because of course, if you have so few patients and you show the principle that it's in, in, in principle possible, the, the results and the statistics and the sensitivity and specificity that he showed was not as high as you would like to see them in the clinic. So the question was, if you have more data, could you actually do that and show that you, this might be a test for the future? So we collected data from colleagues and, and asked, and, and there's, there were public databases that you could uh, address and had to annotate, get new metadata from the colleagues. And so over the years, we compiled the data set with a couple of thousand, um, and in the end, more than 12,000 uh, leukemia patient samples. And then suddenly we could do completely different things. We could even benchmark different algorithms. We could see what is what influences uh, the uh, how these machine learning algorithms can divide the different diseases, uh, and learn a lot by that. Yeah. Um, and and uh, then we also got very interested students that really liked to see that because it was a direct application of of um, machine learning on a, a medical question. You know, better and faster diagnosis of a disease. Um, and so um, it took a while, but then like in, in 2019, we published a paper um, showing that, um, you know, what are the influences on technology, which algorithms are the best performing for, for dividing really different kinds of, of, of leukemias. And that was basically the starting point, how we wanted to use um, AI and machine learning to foster diagnostics. Um, the only reason we took leukemias is because, first of all, yeah, I, I was really intrigued by this study from 1999, which was the first one. Uh, yeah. Uh, and the 20 years is, later, huh? The, yeah, yeah. The 2019 paper. Wow. Exactly. And, and, and what's really true is, you know, you know, people in the AI field know better than me. Um, but with this many more data, yeah, our, our statistics, sensitivity and specificity was so much better. Yeah, because then, mm. then you really could find the patterns that are generalizable which is a prerequisite if you really want to push this into the clinic. And I know that there are consortia now in the world where they really try to do pivotal, uh, pivotal trials to really use these kind of technologies to bring them to the clinical, really to clinical use also in this field and in other cancers as well. And so it was uh, for us an exercise that we said, if, it, if it's possible here, then we can go to other diseases and, and basically do the same and use omics technology. So omics data um, combined with AI approaches to optimize diagnostics. Mm. And I feel like this is kind of relevant to your, your recent paper, right? The, uh, yeah. So yeah. This, this paper is actually the, the reason why I reached out. I found it very fascinating, uh, very exciting. Uh, first of all, I want to say congratulations on the new paper. It came out you know, this year. In nature, um, and it. I was wondering if you could tell us about it. You know, this is like the swarm learning using blockchain technology. Um, yeah. yeah. I was wondering if, in your words, could you you know describe it uh, yeah. as if you yeah. were describing it to a medical student. Yeah. Maybe I, I I tell a little bit of story. You know that people understand there is a lot of working towards such a goal, but there's also serendipity and luck, um, and then of course the the circumstances. Yeah. So. Um, you know, the, the other paper we had published, um, which I just described about the leukemia, you know, at that time, it was clear for us that um, 
you know, gathering all this data is very difficult, you know, and then collecting them. And then sometimes the data were super large and then transporting them or getting them over the line. It's all difficult. So in our institution where I'm now, you know, we are not at our institution is not at one side, but it's at 10 sites in Germany. So we have wow. 10 in 10 institutes in our center where they produce data. Yeah. And so, for example, if you have omics data at the two different places and you want to bring them together, it takes so long to push them over the internet yeah, that mm. sometimes our colleagues actually send the data by, by FedEx with a wow. drive, which is kind of old fashioned stuff, right? So we say like, yeah. wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be nice if we don't have to move the data, but just keep the data where they are produced mm. and then somehow have algorithms that, you know, that we send to the data they, they do the algorithm, they do the analysis at the spot, and then we somehow integrate it. So, you know, the motivation came, we have this institute, we have 10 sites, it's hard to get data together somewhere, it's getting more and more hard because data get bigger and bigger, you know, wouldn't it be better to do the opposite? Um, and, the, and the other thing is, once we started to work with other institutions, it got even worse, because then there was data protection laws, so mm -hmm. you could not even exchange data. So, so we made, made a catalog, like a bullet list and say like, what do we want? What would be an ideal situation? Because That's we beautiful. foresee that there is so much data that is decentralized, cannot be reached because it's somewhere where I can't get it to my place, but I could have a small algorithm. You know, the code is very little, that, that is easy to be sent over the internet. Um, and so we made this bullet list of a, a wish list, if you wish. So this is what I would like to have technically, if data protection should be in place, um, the, the group should all work together. And, and, and then we were thinking, yeah, and, and you know, we have use cases, we know exactly what kind of data we would use for, for testing that. And that was the beginning of 2020, where we had fleshed this out and this started to discuss with people and so on. And there I have to say, we have a very nice collaboration for quite some time in, in high performance computing with Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Mm -hmm. so, my, so the people that I know there very well, um they approached me and says like listen um we have a person in 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 the company that would like to talk to you they're doing ai um and they have a, they have very nice ideas and have also concepts for the future um very much also triggered by the fact that they also think that data is produced more and more at the edge so decentralized and it's getting more and more difficult to to basically bring all the data together for ai applications and I was thinking, this is kind of reminiscent of what we were thinking. Yeah, we had a different <laughs> motivation because we wanted to, you know, we, we had the big data and we couldn't solve anything. But they said, like, you know, there's en energy consumption is high. If you duplicate data, it just costs money. Storing data costs money. Transporting data actually costs money. So if we don't have to do that. So I said, of course, you know, who is that? I want to talk to him. So this is the, the so so then we we got basically got to know the team from Emlingo, um, who is a you know one of the leaders in in uh, building hardware for AI applications. And he has a whole team, and and we met them, and they showed us something that they called swarm learning. And I was like, okay, let's see that. So so he he came up and said, like, you know, we want to have a uh, new technologies that use less energy. We don't want to duplicate data. We want to make them secure. And we have a technology that we built, um, but we need kind of 
to know whether they really are applicable to to the real world, you know, to 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 domains where this is usable. So, in essence, we came together. We had a clear clear wish list what we want to have technically, but we know exactly what to apply them for. And they had a technology and said, like, yeah, but it would be nice to know now what should we apply them to. So oh, that's, well, that's perfect. perfect fit. Yeah. Wow. So, and that's that's kind of innovation because if you have a technology and no use case, that's not innovation yet. Only with yeah. the use case you have the innovation. So I was super happy that night and, and I said, like, hopefully this is working out. And and then I got immediately emails. So yeah, let's let's start this. Yeah. And and there it was very important because I said, you know, we, we just published a paper. On, on transcriptomics data for leukemias, where we know that th there are machine learning algorithms that will lead to extremely good results if you have all data in one place. But of course, now we can simulate and say like, what would have happened if the data would not have been collected by us, but they would still stay where they were produced, you know, by the mm -hmm. hospitals and institutions around the world. And they said, that's a beautiful use case. Let's try that because the swarm learning does exactly the following. Swarm learning principle is uh, is a is a is an infrastructure for machine learning, where you can leave the data where they have been produced, and you bring the algorithms to the data. And there's another thing that uh, people have thought about, which is called federated uh, learning. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a difference. There's an important difference. You know, for some people that are more technically uh, oriented, yeah. they might see like that's not a big difference, but conceptually, it's a it's a huge difference, because in what is called federated learning, you know, to make sure that if you have data all across different institutions. You know, somehow you have to organize that, you know, how I'm learning. And in federated learning, there's one entity, one instance that basically organizes how the algorithms are sent to the to the data mm -hmm. and how basically the parameters are set. So you basically have one instance that is really powerful because it makes all the decisions. Yeah. So and that's not a democratic way of doing things, you yeah, because the, the people that have the data would just provide the data and there's one instance that makes the decision making of how do we learn which algorithms we use how long we do we learn what what should be the results and so on so it's more centralized it's very it, it's kind of still centralized because the decision making mm -hmm. is by one of course you could say like I, I share the decision making but even technically it's it's one instance it's actually also not so fault tolerant yeah if you have a if you have this coordinating server where this technically is then done and that one is is it's challenged or you know is is invaded or something like that the whole system is then in 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 jeopardy mm -hmm. so what hewlett packard enterprise provided us was different they said like we don't want to have this central instance we want to have equals among equals yeah we want to have you know if you have data uh, you should be having similar rights to what is the outcome then the insights that you find um and so that's why they said we we basically instead of having this central instance, we built a technology that allows to share amongst partners on an equal way. And this is the blockchain they bring in. Now, it's not comparable with the public blockchain we know about Bitcoin. This is completely different. This has nothing to do with it, with it because this is a privacy preserving blockchain. So you're building mm. an environment where you can trust each other. Yeah? You, in, you, block, you block the outside and you put basically the rules of how you trust each other into the blockchain. Yeah? So um, 
in practice, you could imagine, you know, people come together from different institutes in medicine. It's like, we want to do a new AI algorithm and we will have data, but they're all over the country or all over continent or mm -hmm. across the world. But we would like to do this together and we would come together and make the rules. And it's like, which data do we use? Which format of the data? Uh, which algorithms we're using? Uh, what are the rights? What are the responsibilities? Yeah, what kind of insights do we want to get from that? And once we set the rules, we put that into a smart contract and that is built into the blockchain. It's stored there. Yeah. And so mm. then you have the rules and then you start only if everybody agreed on that. And the blockchain, of course, monitors that. So even if one of the swarm nodes would be invaded from the outside, the blockchain would, you know, the, the swarm would immediately realize that and could basically make sure that this one swarm node that might have been, you know, um, invaded. Um, and, and would isolate that from the rest and the rest of the swarm would be still okay yeah because the, the blockchain is one of the of the major major task of the blockchain is to secure that the swarm is intact yeah and is following the rules that it was set before and the nice thing is because everybody has to bring his, his own ideas about what the rules should be it's a it's a joint decision making it's not one that decides uh, we're doing this and you have to follow no, every, every partner has the right to, to you know, contribute to the decision-making. And that's even- A quick question. Learn. Yeah, sure. When you say invaded by the, the, yeah, the you know, node you is could, invaded, what does yeah, that mean? You could basically say there's an attack from the outside, yeah? And, and, and somebody wants to attack the, the, the swarm and, and gets into one of the computer systems, yeah? And, and gets into one of the swarm nodes to, you know, maybe change the data, you know, to just jeopardize the whole thing. Yeah, the blockchain basically on the rule sets, the blockchain would realize that because that node would not behave anymore like it did before. Yeah, it was that a common the... risk in, in like collaborative learning. Yeah. Or collaborative yeah. Risk. yeah, and it's it's actually if you have a federated system, the, the highest risk is if you actually attack the central the central instance. Yeah, mm. the, the parameter server. So. Um, and in a swarm, you don't I'm have just who is who, out there trying to attack like academic researchers, well, you know, you know, if you never know. And, and of course, in an academic setting, maybe yes, but you could use that technology also for, you know, mm. running a smart grid or smart, mm -hmm. smart uh, uh, cities or that make, autonomous okay, that cars. Or, you know, the, there's a lot of things yeah. that you could apply this to. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Yeah. And, it, and, and honestly, the, one of the most important tasks for the for the centralized uh, or central player in the federated is really making sure that the whole thing is secure. Yeah, so that mm -hmm. we're not having these issues. The problem is, if the central instance is itself not secure, then the whole system is not secure anymore. In a, in a blockchain-driven smart uh, uh, swarm, you can isolate uh, um, individual nodes much easier, much more easier. Yeah? And of course, um, one other aspect is if you think about medicine and, and you know, sharing responsibilities and having equal rights is this is also how medicine works. You know, medicine, we, we learn with each other and uh, we learn from each other, but it's never in a system that one rules everything. Yeah, that's that, that's also in medical tradition. It has never happened. Mm -hmm. And swarm learning is actually reflecting that. So it's really reflecting medical traditions much better than, than everything else. Yeah, so that's that that was the starting point last year. And then we did the first case, you know, in the swarm paper, we basically used the leukemia where we knew exactly what happens yeah, because 
we had the central model basically published before. And mm -hmm. now we ask, does this, does, if you then have, you know, few data at many spots, swarm nodes, and you send the algorithms to these smaller nodes, and then basically run the swarm learning principles that you then integrate the parameters, would you be able to perform as good as we did before when we had all data with us? And the answer was yes. Yeah, so oh, the performance. Yeah. So it's not only that you have advantages because you, you know, in the long run, if you think forward, you can, you know, ask people to join a swarm and thereby increase the number of data. Um, but we could really show that the performance is, is actually pretty pretty good, uh, as good as it was before. And that is, of course, you know, you know, absolutely necessary before we start thinking about using such a new technology for, for applying it. Yeah, so that was the first test that we have, you know, I remember when we got the first results there, we were extremely excited and happy and said, but, you know, now we should go to the next task. You know, what if we have other data, more difficult data? Leukemia, you could argue, you know, it's, it's called the white cancer of the blood because that's originally, yeah, if you have a white, if you have leukemia and you look at the blood, it, it has, has actually so many tumor cells and these are the white cells that the blood turns white, whitish. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you could imagine that, you know, when you look at, at tumor cells versus normal cells, that they have so much difference you know, that you would easily catch that. Yeah? So we said, what is a more difficult one? And that's where we turned to another disease where we said, okay, and also there, we had access to data from different places, and that's tuberculosis. Now, and the reason why it's more difficult is infectious diseases, you know, they have basically a different kind of um, kinetics. Yeah, So there are different stages of the disease. And when, mm. you, when you take a sample from a patient, you never know, is he in the early stage or does he have the, the bug already for quite some time? So there's much more variation in the signal. So it was not so sure whether this would work out, but it also worked out. Yeah, that was super exciting. So that's how we started basically to get into this project. I'm curious if you could talk a bit about like the principles that you agree on beforehand. You're saying like with the swarm yeah. learning, like yeah. they have yeah. to agree on certain yeah. principles. So they're on several levels. Yeah? So for example, you know, when you come together and say like, we're building a swarm and everybody of us, you know, I'm from this institute, you're from that institute and so on. We built a swarm node in our institute on our, our compute systems. Then you would say like, okay, let's, let's think about what's the question. So our first question was, okay, better like leukemia diagnostics. Okay, mm -hmm. which, so we agree on that. The next thing is what kind of data do we use? Well, you know, there's different options. Yeah? One might use genomics, one might use immunology, flow cytometry, another one said cytogenetics, or we use blood transcriptomes. So you would agree on, okay, we all use blood transcriptomes. What is the format of that? Well, how do they, how do you have to pre-process them until you basically provide them on your node for the machine learning? So you would agree on that as well, yeah? to make agreements on that. Then you select what kind of algorithm do we, do we need? One thing is clear for the moment. At the moment, as it is designed, swarm learning would have for one question to be answered in a swarm, every node would use the same algorithm. Yeah. Um, every node uses yeah, the same algorithm. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's, there's future, um, there's future uh, plans that this can also be varied so that even in one question, you could basically use different ones at different places. But for the moment being is, if you have settled that and you want to answer this one question, leukemia or not, for example, as in our case, you would basically say like, okay, we want to have a, a, a deep neural network. Um, 
somebody would program that would basically take the code and would provide the same code to all sides so that we really have equal um, conditions at each side where we where we do the analysis. I have a question. Sure. So, so when the, the learning happens, you know, if every node uses the same algorithm, do you um, like, do you learn it? Like, do you, do you go like in a stepwise manner, like node one, node two, node three, node four, or do like all the nodes learn at the same time? And then you like average the weights or. Exactly. And, and the way, you know, as, as you said, every, every node learns at the same time. So you, that's the other thing you agree on. Once you have that settled, you said, like, okay, now we start and the starting point by you know you basically choose randomly one node that says now we are all starting yeah mm. and and during that first learning round yeah that node would then also collect the results so which parameters perform best to um for the task and then one one way of basically saying no how do we put them now together is to take the parameters from the different nodes so the results and say like we, we average them now but there's also other means you could argue i want to take the minimum or i take the maximum or you know that's a decision making that the swarm does together so there's not one deciding everything but all together would say. or you say like mm -hmm. we do a first round and and we try averaging as the best one yeah or there's different kinds of averaging and then we see maybe that's not that's the best result so let's start all over and then another another node would basically run the next next iteration yeah Again, this can all be organized beforehand. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And, and um, as we described in the paper, there's quite some different ways of, of integrating the parameters later on. And of course, that has you can also do weights. You could, for example, say what we learned is interesting part is if you have small nodes and very large nodes, yeah, you could, of course, weight them and say, like, you know, is a large node gets mm -hmm. more weight mm -hmm. than a small one. Mm -hmm. But you could also leave that out and say, like, no, I don't want that because there might be a big bias in a big node. And that would then, if you weight that, that bias would actually increase in the result. But you could also say like, by purpose, I don't do that because you can, if there would be a big bias in a big node and you just give them the same right now, uh, basically for the results, then that bias is reduced. And we saw that actually in our results. We, in, in some instances, we outperformed the, the central model. And the reason oh, wow. was very, very simple because um, we had distributed the samples so unevenly, but kept the results to be um, without weight. So every result, every node had the same saying, so to say, in the averaging. And some of the big nodes that we had created as a, in the simulation had a huge bias. Yeah. Oh, but the bias was, but the bias then was not calculated as it was number-wise because we gave it only you know um the percentage of the nodes yeah let's say we have uh, five nodes also the big nodes only um had 20 percent um influence on the overall result despite the fact that they might have had 80 percent of the samples yeah and like do you this, think that's a happy accident or is it like yeah, we, we we asked that question you know but we didn't know what the result the answer would be so um in the end we found out that's actually beneficial yeah and if you think about medicine, this situation will happen over and over again. Yeah? So you will have maybe think about it, uh, uh, even a worldwide network. You might have some samples from the United States and some from Europe and Asia, uh, Australia. And there might be some smaller sites that have, for example, a completely different genetic background, yeah? which is normal over, across the mm. world. Uh, but we could basically say like, you know, 
even if we have a lot of samples from, from Europe and, and uh, US where they might have more, more money to do uh, the studies, you know, we would not weight them um, to, their, um, to their percentage that they contribute, but rather keep them exactly as a small place, like for example, in Africa. And so and that, that also democratizes wow. you know, the development of these things in the world, or has the chance at least. Now we have to show that in, in subsequent studies that um, this kind of ideas really could help smaller places uh, or institutions that have less resources to really contribute to the same level. You know, coincidentally, this actually, us talking about, you know, these formulas, this actually makes me think of the American democratic system. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, you know, like, like um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, but you know how in America there's yes. like, it, yes, we have there's two different houses or there's like a house of representatives and there's Congress and like, in one form, it's like each state, each, you know, if a state is a node, each state gets two representatives and there's like 50 states. So there's a hundred total. And then each state is like equally weighted among the other states. And then that's one half. But then the other half is the house of representatives, which is like based off of like, you know, like California has like a lot of people. So there's a lot more representatives. There's a lot more weight to California versus like North Dakota or Wyoming has much less population and there's less weight. And then like the kind of the two of them together you know, like kind of check there's balance each other out. And I'm, I'm curious, yeah. like it just reminded me of our conversation just now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, the thing is, of course, it can go in, into both directions. But the nice thing about the swarm is you can, of course, test it. Yeah, mm -hmm. you can see. And, you know, it's, we, we, we uh, in the, for the paper, we ran a lot of simulations, yeah, to make sure that what kind of things have impact, yeah. So it was very nice during the process, you know, um, we had very knowledgeable reviewers. They asked really interesting questions that we could address. Uh, for example, what happens in genomics very often is that you have different ways of generating the data. Yeah? And, um, and from, from the experience over the last 20 years, we knew for certain analyses that has a huge impact on, on your interpretation of the data. So that was a, you know, a question that I, I thought very wise to say, like, you know, we know from biological questions, if you run the experiment in a certain way, the results might be different than if you do the sequencing in a different way. And so what is the impact? And so we really said, like, okay, let's do that. So it's like one, we just have, let's, let's say we have five nodes. And um, we basically said one node does the, the data generation in a certain way. So they do a certain sequencing technology, another node in another one, and so on. Yeah? So each node had a different sequencing. And of course, the sequencing should not have an impact on my AI to identify a leukemia or not. Yeah? Uh, so everything that comes from the sequencing should be somehow seen as noise and should be erased from the equation in the end. <laughs> And the swarm was, swarm was much more robust doing that. Yeah? So if you, if you put them all together, it was very hard to do. While the swarm basically, you know, when you then do the averaging of the parameters from the individual sites, you know, there you could easily learn which of the parameters are site specific or nodes, mm. swarm mm. node specific. And they were basically in this averaging, you know, they got a disadvantage yeah? because they came only usually from one site and not from the other ones. While the mm -hmm. signals that are really leukemia specific, they were all in all sites. And like this, the, the swarm is actually a good example of how you could use distributed learning to actually to your advantage because site-specific biases are, you know, you are weighted down automatically. And that's a very, very good uh, um, or very important advantage actually.
Well, that's I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that because I, I think that's really cool idea that you know site specific biases are, are weighted down. But I, I could you kind of say one more time how, how that how that happens? Well, the, the thing is, you know, when you have the let's let's presume you have make it a very simple ex, uh, example is um, in in this area you have four nodes that are doing things rather similar, but one node is having the same disease but has a different technique to to get the data. And of course, you will have parameters there that are not mm. coming from the difference from leukemia or not. It comes from the technology, right? And that, okay, yeah, be, yeah. and that would be noise. While the other four will never see these parameters, right? Mm. And in your learning process, the parameters that are coming from this one node that are technology driven rather than disease driven, they will It's be, like they have like a funny pipette or something. Like they're, they're, yeah, one exactly, of their techniques is exactly. that. Okay. And they have a systemic bias or something like that. And these it. parameters, would be basically in this swarm learning process would be erased over time. Yeah, Whereas in a like, centralized way, they would be averaged with all the other ones. And exactly. And then, oh, okay, and then okay. yeah. And, and that's why, um, why I think to separate that, um, you know, you, you can deal with biases better. Of course, there's more to learn because um, probably also depends on, on the data that itself. Yeah. So you can optimize for that. So these are actually follow-up projects that are currently ongoing. Yeah, to, to really see how far can we actually go? How much of these noise can we get out? You know, how noisy can the data be? And we still see the signal much better in the swarm than we would see it in a centralized model. That's awesome. That's actually like, to me, I found that uh, counterintuitive, but now it makes much more sense because I would have originally thought that because you have it separated in different nodes, certain swarm nodes would be certain, you know, like certain data institutions would have their own unique protocols and that would cause them to skew their data in a certain way, which would cause more bias. But now that you've explained it, I'm like, oh, wow, that actually makes a lot of sense. Like, you know, that actually, yeah. it reduces the bias because you realize that you can isolate the nodes based off of institution. And then, you know, instead of averaging them all together in a wash, it's kind of, you have distinct places that you can like reduce weights based on a certain, and that, wow, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And of course you would never been exposed to that. If you don't have that technology, you would of course avoid that, but then not realizing that, um, you're actually losing information that the swarm has actually and can use for your benefit. Wow. Do you think yeah. this is the future of collaborative research pr practices? You know, that was a motivation. I hope so. Yeah, because honestly, um, aren't we as scientists not all intended to publish our own data first? Yeah. Um, and, and, and isn't it hard always just like I did all this data and now I give it and, and it can be, you know, used by others. You know, I'll be like, it's mine, yeah. But here I felt, you know, yes, because it, it's still, it's always yours. You make the decision with whom you work together, but then you don't have to fear that somebody explores it to an extent that you cannot control anymore because the swarm, you have a, you have a clear agreement, yeah. So if you get, become a member of the swarm, and you said, I have data with, you know, in, in, particularly in omics, you can do so many questions with omics data, yeah. But since you're a member and it's like for each question, you can have an insight, how's the question answered? Do I want to contribute? I mean, that makes it much easier to make it open. Yeah? Plus also, if you think about, you know, we, we actually got um, feedback also from people um, that are in ethics, yeah? um, also even on the European level. So um, who really think about, you know, how do we make sure that uh, data can be used for other questions, yet we might not have asked the data owner. 
in the first mm. place that you can use it. But this kind of thing it actually opens up a lot of opportunities because yeah. the data owner is still in possession to say like, yeah, this time I'm, I, you know, my patients all said yes, so I contribute to this form. Next time you might have a lot of patients that said, no, that's not a question we want to. And you still have never given the data somewhere else. So the control really cool. is much easier. Yeah. And I think um, it's just a mindset change. So if you talk about people that are very fond of pushing everything to a central data space, they have still troubles to say, like, is this really, isn't that too complicated, all this? Um, but in the end, you know, we have not been exposed to the situation um, that uh, people retract uh, their data from giving it to science. Yeah? But it could happen. So but how do you do that if your data has been duplicated five times and it's sitting mm -hmm. somewhere in the world? How do you get the data back? Yeah, and and yeah. tell your patient, well, now I took care of it. Yeah, we all know from from the internet. You know, once you once your picture is on Facebook, it's not never going to be erased. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's the same kind of situation. If I don't put it on Facebook, but you know, if I, in in other words, you know, speaking, if I never give it out to somebody else but rather make the decision always like here, I join a swarm to learn for this question and here I learn for another question. But the third one, I might not be applicable because uh, I'm, I'm not in the position. Then you, you never gave out the data, but you can still contribute to a lot. Yeah. And that, I think in the long run, that's better than just pushing data out. Actually, with all these discussions that we had now with this swarm learning paper, I come to this, this um, to, to my opinion at the moment that I'm, I'm very much for open science yeah mm -hmm. absolutely I'm also for open insights yeah so whatever we learn should be shared immediately open what we learned open insights mm -hmm. and open knowledge yeah but I'm not so sure whether open data is absolutely necessary to have open science and open insights yeah. so this should be discussed again yeah because we might actually keep very private, valuable data, not so open, yet still generate open insights from it. Yeah. And That's if, you great. Think about, if you think about medical tradition, yeah, you go in the in the ancient times, yeah, where there was already a patient uh, physician privilege, yeah. Even in the old days, a physician was not allowed to talk about a patient's uh, well-being or disease. Yeah. And that tradition is up to, to today. We have the Hippocratic uh, oath, right? Everybody every doctor in the world yeah so you're not to, supposed to talk about your patient's data yeah but what you can always talk about with your colleague is about a disease mm -hmm. yeah about the symptoms of a disease and that's the insight yeah so i learned from my patients you know that disease has these symptoms and this, these combinations so i don't have to talk about the patient him or herself but i can still talk about what i learned from the patient and swarm learning is doing exactly that. Yeah. Wow. I share the insights, but I don't share the, the data that have the danger that they're too too private. Yeah. And I think that's very much in the medical tradition. And that's why I like it so much. That's beautiful. I, I think this is, you know, a beautiful story, great story. Like, and I feel like, you know, you're the perfect guy to solve this kind of problem because even just, you know, you're in so many different fields and um, a I great integrator. Say, I, I could have not done anything myself. I have to give all the credit to the team. And this was a uh, very important thing that we learned during this time. You know, we were, you know, there were AI specialists, computer scientists, medical doctors, 
uh, clinical chiefs, there were molecular biologists, you know, biomedical people. So a very, very uh, diverse uh, group of people that were super dedicated. Yeah? I think I had the, you know, big honor to, you know, guide this team through this time and this project. But me alone, no, there was no way. And that's also a nice <laughs> thing to see, you know, you can do it in big teams if they work good together and across disciplines. You know, what I probably fostered a little bit is that, you know, to have these different languages from a computer scientist and a medical doctor and, and cross virtualize that, yeah, because um, that was certainly one of my jobs in this whole thing. Yeah, so that uh, people felt comfortable and it's like, okay, I don't know exactly what you're doing, but you know, the way you explain it to me, I trust it, particularly if you, mm. you know, if, if you think about also the, the many colleagues from the clinics that basically gave uh, patient samples that we could sequence and, and do the COVID work, you know, there was all brand new samples and the patients came from European uh, clinics all over the place. You know, we had to explain them. We want to do this uh, fancy new machine learning um, method, and and of course, you know, if you're trained as a clinician, you not necessarily have to know about these things. But if you make them clear that you know they're part of a bigger story, um, that was the important aspect. But without all these many different peoples, we would have no chance. Mm. What What do you think are the next steps for this project? We started the next steps. Yeah. First of all, I mean, you know, so far we have not seen too many people that were super critical and saying like, no, there's no way. Yeah. Even those I know, good friends and colleagues that, um, you know, really think about lots of data pushing towards one place. But even those were saying, yeah, well, if we, if we see the the system that looks good, um, so many people are very positive. That also means many people came with. Uh, additional ideas what could we do now what are the next data and so on yeah. so um we started a couple of things um one is a challenging one but um we hope to get uh, get this done is in the domain of immunology yeah. um in contrast to genomics where we have spent quite some time on standardization of data many years ago yeah the, very early on it was very clear the formats of sequencing data that you need for genomics need to be super standardized. And so, for example, out of these sequencing machines, the files that are generated, they're all the same, irrespective of what which vendors fast queue files. Yeah. So mm -hmm. super high standardized. Everybody knows exactly what, what the lines mean in this uh, in the files. Um, and, and, and so, and the next ones, you know, you pre-process these uh, to the next level, again standardized. So that's that's the situation where you can start really applying AI methods much easier because you know we all know if the data is not good, the best algorithm cannot solve that. Yeah, you have yeah. to have good data. So immunology, although super, you know, super technology is there and a lot of excellent science, standardization is not as far. So what we're doing right now is we take one of the typical data types in immunology that a lot of labs around the world are using. And we're trying to standardize them in a way that they're much more applicable to AI approaches. But then we have even a bigger problem than in, in genomics. Very often these data are generated only in labs, not only uh, you know, in institutes where they have catalogs for that. It's actually more group by group, research group by research group. So it's even smaller you know, and, and more swarm potential swarm members. 
Yeah, so we want to develop an infrastructure that allows us to get uh, these kind of immune data across many groups and then see what actually is the benefit if I have more data analyzing these uh, immunophenotypes that uh, we can do in immunology. The other people that actually came to us is, uh, is imaging. Yeah? So in medicine, mm -hmm. you have a lot of imaging you know, from x-rays, which we, which we actually did in the paper where we used the public data set. But where people came with different questions saying like, you know, if this works for genomics data, it should work for image data. And I said, yeah, in principle, we showed that already, but now we can go for specific questions. Yeah. So for example, in neuroimaging or, or in other fields where people have started to apply AI, but are basically getting always to the same point. The data sets are not very big and uh, we need to have more data, but it's again, very hard, you know, neuro, take neuroimaging, you know, you take an, uh, uh, an NMR of the brain is a huge files. It's a huge yeah. data. Yeah. yeah. So you don't want to transport them from one place to the other. But what if you could basically say, like, now we bring the swarm to this field, and then each of these big sites can actually run their algorithms, and then we put them again together. So they're very excited. So we have to just start these things now. And I hope a lot of other people pick up because you can use this technology. So Hewlett Packard Enterprise put this stuff on GitHub. It's a very nice website. Um, oh, it's publicly available. It's um, it's what they did is basically so you know you can imagine that industry um, you know if, if if financial industry wants to use form learning, which they actually probably want to do, you know I think it's uh, it's it's absolutely right that Hewlett Packard says well if they want to use it in in for business then they should pay for it yeah so that's I think that's fair enough. Mm -hmm. um, so they what they do is basically you have a you can test it for a certain time yeah and then for research if you can make make yourself clear that you're only using it for research then you can have a use license yeah and so you so so people can really try it out and and of course if you want to make business out of it then Hewlett Packard says well then you have to pay a little bit for us because we all invented that stuff. Wow, wow. this is really cool stuff. Yeah. Wow. I don't know. Uh, I, I guess I was wondering too, like with the swarm, is does there need to be any kind of like central maintenance? You know, like does, does, does someone need to go in and kind of like kind of maintain the swarm or you know what I mean? So they, I think Hewlett Packard Enterprise has done a very good job. Yeah. So, you, you know, th there's a couple of software components. One is, for example, like a containerized system where the swarm logic is in there, the blockchain and everything. And the other container is more or less uh, where you have the algorithms yeah? and then also the access to the local data and so on. And this is highly standardized. And what I learned, the word is productified. So it's really like a product already. Yeah? So you really can see it like a, a, you know, an industry standard software that can be installed in your computer system. I mean, wow. you should probably not use your smallest laptop. That's not a good starting point, but you would not run AI applications anyway on a laptop. Yeah? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I would say whoever does AI applications in a local fashion, you know, they can install this software very easily. So the idea to do that is, 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 is rather simple. Yeah? And then onboarding new members, they have even thought about, you know, make it user friendly. They have, uh, you know, each swarm would then have like a portal, yeah, like a, an internal web portal, like an, an intranet, and then mm -hmm. could onboard additional swarm members. And they can then in, again install just the software to, to start doing it. And then you, you put your own algorithms on there, you do your test runs, whether it works locally. 
and then you start start this form. So it's it's pr pretty advanced. Yeah, it's not like wow. this is the difference. You know, there was not an academic group doing just the first time coding. It was really already productified. There were software engineers working on these things. So it's a it's a different ball game. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. And uh, you know, th this question we normally ask every guest, but I feel like we've already been talking about it quite a lot. And it's um, you know, what do you think the future of AI and medicine will look like in ten to twenty years? Yeah. Um, and I guess you know this uh, for much of this interview, we've been talking about swarm learning. But I was wondering, uh, you know, for that question. Uh, what, what is your answer and uh, does it involve swarm learning or is it something else yeah so i think you know swarm learning is one of the enabling technologies you know we have also to work on on better data a better accessibility standardization of data and also of of certain algorithms although i'm not so uh, not so convinced that we need to have more sophisticated algorithms i think we should spend more time on very good data with very good mm -hmm. metadata yeah mm -hmm. because that's a big problem in medicine, yeah. And I think we can actually apply probably rather simple algorithms uh, if the data is very good. Yeah. So yes. let's focus on that. But I'm convinced that without AI combined with high throughput, high content data like uh, you know high resolution imaging, genomics, these kind of data, um, medicine will not become precision medicine. And if we all want to go for, to, for precision medicine or at least more precise medicine, yeah, there's no way around it. Yeah? Because the explosion of knowledge that we have, um, you have to have these systems that help and support uh, physicians with decision-making. Uh, and since we are you know, conquering data spaces that we cannot see anymore as, as human beings, yeah? if you yeah. take an X-ray, you know, a very good radiologist can see a lot in an X-ray, yeah? mm -hmm. but I have not seen a single genomics person that can see, yeah, sequencing wow. data. Yeah. And, that's know, a good because point. that's not yeah. possible. Yeah, so we we are conquering new data spaces where you need machines that help you analyzing the data. Mm. If you want to use that diagnostic, so there's no way around it for me, and so that's why we're also investing. There's another reason why I think this will come and and help because, in in many countries, it's very clear that a physician should work under the premise that you work to the state of the art. Yeah, so, you know, and if the state of the art is kind of the, the knowledge base is exploding, it's it's getting every yeah. day so much more, it's getting harder and harder for a physician to work on the state of the art because you have no time to get to know what's happening. So while in the old days, physicians were more hesitant to say like, I don't need this computer things that help me to make decisions, yeah? Now, I think this changes because without that, you might not work on the state of the art and then you get into the jeopardy that somebody could tell you, well, you did not know mm. and that's why you did something wrong and then you get sued, yeah? So yeah. to avoid that, the better is you use systems that allow you to stay on the state of the art. So it's an expert systems, if you wish so modern ways of expert systems. So that's why I'm convinced there's a lot of movements from different directions that lead to the way that physicians will have a better position if they know how to use these things. Of course, there is ethical things, there's bias that we have to deal with. Yeah, that we should not have, minorities should not uh, suffer from that. So we really have to take care of many things. But these are all things, if, we, if we're honest, we can solve them yeah, to the better. And there, I'm, I'm pretty sure that this will, will happen. So my view of in 10 to 20 years is that AI will be part of diagnostics. Mm. It, I have also a very strong view on it will never basically replace a doctor. It will change the way 
you know, medicine is done again. And I could even, you know, very optimistically think that a lot of doctors will free up their time for what they are supposed to do, namely helping directly their patients, speaking with them again, dealing with their decision making rather than, you know, finding some spots in a radiogram. Yeah, you know, a machine might be much better in finding the spot in the, in the, in the x-ray. Yeah, so that the doctor doesn't have to do that. And mm -hmm. he or she can then spend more time with the patients again. So very optimistically speaking, leveraging the explosion of the knowledge that we have, plus having more time for their patients could be actually a quite good future. I'm not so afraid of that, you know, these machines or something like would take over. That's not what I think is happening. That's good so, to hear. <laughs> um, also, one of our questions that we ask every guest is, uh, what advice would you give to yourself in your 20s? You know, be curious be open to what's coming out what's the future don't be pessimistic i mean we you know of course i was growing up or i was in the 20s when there was much more belief in in modern technologies than it is right now because you know we, we're talking about many crises now we have a pandemic we have a climate change but honestly we had crises as well there was uh, you know politically um, we had crisis so i think you know the opportunity that we have in these days is so large that we should work on these crises, but you know, be optimistic about this. Um, and there are people in the world that do statistics and the WHO is providing them the numbers and other large international institutions. And there's, um, there's a nice book, which is called Factfulness. Um, I, I just ask everybody to read this. Uh, is, a, is a Swedish epidemiologist who was sick of hearing that we're, you know, the future will be bad. And he just took the numbers. And if you take the numbers um, about uh, humankind, you know, what changed in the last 30 years, uh, most of the parameters got all better. Yeah? There's more people that are healthy. Yeah. There's more people that are not, not in, in poverty anymore. Um, there is in certain areas we had actually um, dealt with pollution. And so, yes, there's crisis and there's things to be done and they're dangerous, but um, we should be more optimistic. Yeah? We have to work on these things, but um, be curious and try to think how can I actually leverage what's out there the many opportunities uh, get dedicated and 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 be sure you know there's always a plan b and a solution yeah so resilient you know um yeah there's a way yeah life is probably much better than it was 500 years ago 400 300 200 years ago so let's be more optimistic. i agree i feel like now is the best time ever to be a human alive <laughs> Yeah, and and all, yeah, sure. I know that, that our our world and our planet is uh, not having endless resources. So we we learned now that we have to deal with that. But now we know that this is the case, and we we can actually plan how to do this and and live with that. Yeah. So mm -hmm. um, and so just find the solutions for that. That doesn't yeah. mean that's the end. Yeah. I think that's the perfect note to end this interview on. It's very optimistic, empowering. Um, Dr. Schulze, it was such an honor to have you on our show today. Um, and uh, do you have any closing closing remarks that you'd like to give? No, I, I would like to thank you because I, uh, you know, I see that as a scientist, it's very important uh, that we have to reach out um, and really yeah. early on tell also people outside of 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 the sciences, uh, people that might use technology, new ones in science, to you know where we're up to and. 
and why we're doing this and, and that the motivations are really there to save science for the better good of humankind. And um, that's that's a mission and um, and uh, that's what we're trying to do and that's why I'm really honored as well to be part of this and I uh, hope many people can hear that and, and take something out of it. Thank you very much. Thank you.